Father, open our eyes further, our spiritual eyes, to see the truth of this song. The reasons, the manifold reasons we have for our soul's peace and assurance of our great salvation in Jesus Christ our Lord. As we have praised you, I pray that you would add to these reasons as we open your word this day. As we turn to the book of Nahum and see in your holy scriptures how you dispatched enemies of your gospel 2,600 years ago in anticipation of what you would accomplish even in our day, even with us coming to the knowledge of the truth, salvation being satisfied in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Our minds, Lord Jesus, are brought with fresh attention to the heaven and earth that you moved and the great lakes that you took and the perfect plan that you had to accomplish our redemption. I pray that you would move us to worship and to praise and to confidence and to faith as we open your scriptures this day, that we might proclaim them as boldly as we see them written in the pages of your holy, infallible word. Lord, I pray that you would use the proclamation of your scriptures this morning to chase away the doubt and the sins that easily beset, the distractions that cloud our vision, that we might see the way straight unto the will that you have prepared for us, the footsteps in advance for us to walk in, that we might be emissaries of your ever-expanding kingdom. We thank you, Lord, for the tools, the means that you've given us this day. What a gracious gift they are. Draw the lost unto salvation and equip your church, we pray, through the proclamation of your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise God. What a glorious privilege to turn and what a precious reality the scriptures are to us today. I'd encourage you to join me in turning Uh, to Nahum chapter 2, Nahum chapter 2, as we consider this minor prophet, the sequel to Jonah, in some more depth today. It's been a little while since we've been in this series, but what we are tracking with here is the record of God's dealings with nations, with people groups, uh, with respect to how they treated His people and how they stewarded the truth that God had proclaimed to them. And in the book of Nahum, we find that the city of Nineveh as receiving an oracle of judgment. And this time the word of God comes a second time and it is bringing the proclamation of doom, devastation, and destruction. Remember the word of God came to Nineveh through his prophet Jonah. Jonah wished that he could see the doom of the city. He didn't like the Assyrians, didn't like the Ninevites all that much for good reason. They're a warmongering, terroristic type people who had set their sights on the people of God and had harassed them taking them into captivity in the northern kingdoms, and then began to threaten Judah. And so uh, Jonah, understandably, was upset with these people, and he wanted them destroyed. However, God's patience was seen in his book. When he proclaimed, yet 40 days in Nineveh will be rubble, the people heard the word of God, and they turned from their wickedness and sin. They placed faith in the word delivered from his prophet, and from king to pauper, they repented in sackcloth and ashes. And so the Lord... He waited, and his destruction did not come at that moment that Jonah wished, but it would come later. It was proclaimed again with more specificity through the prophet Nahum, and this time it was irrevocable. As we see in this uh, uh, passage here, when, under that introduction, that the explanation and the description of what would happen is illustrated in very evocative war poetry. That's the title of this morning's message, War Poetry a poetic, descriptive, and graphic, and specific way 
to de detail and to illustrate the judgments of God that are deserving on the heads of those who have abandoned the Word of God. The aim of this morning's message is that the sobering realities of this sovereign history would curb our state idolatry, would curb our idolatry in anything. Uh, um, and, and secondly, that it would strengthen our faith in Christ. That the sobering realities of the history, the sovereign history recorded in Scripture, would move us to repent of our own idolatry, and particularly idolatry in the environment, the state, the government, the society in which we live, which we often find so much provision, promise, and comfort and safety, that we would uh, be moved to confess and to reject the tendency toward idolatry. And secondly, that our faith in Christ as King of Kings would be greatly strengthened. Would you stand with me for the reading of the Word out of reverence and fear, again, as we consider chapter 2 of Nahum's book. Here we have the Holy Word of God. Verse 1. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Verse 7, its mistress is stripped. She has carried off her slave girls, lamenting, moaning like doves, and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end to the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguishes in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions. Where is the lion? Where the lion and lioness went? Where his cubs were, with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses? He fills his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh? Verse 13, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Nahum, as we've mentioned, is given the task of delivering the message of irrevocable, of the irrevocable judgments of God against a city and nation, Nineveh and Assyria, who were infamous warmongers, history's first terrorists in some ways, if you will. They had invented horrific ways to humiliate their neighbors and to strike fear into their hearts by their cruelty, by their great war crimes and injustices, if you will. So God has set a reckoning date for Nineveh for their war crimes on his calendar, for their sins against him, and that day is fast approaching. This time in the record of history, no repentance is forthcoming, as in the days of Jonah, and that fact only renders the city doubly guilty 
having received the testimony of the law of God years previously. They have heard from the mouth of Jonah that they are sinners in need of a Savior. And they have turned from that message of hope where God restrained His hand of judgment. And they have gone back to their wicked idols, their gods that moved them to destruction and war and to a rapacious and capricious violent activity, especially overrunning their neighbors and wreaking great havoc across the land. As we pay attention to who's in view, we find that Nineveh is the, the offending city and Assyria, the, uh, which is the country boasting this cultural center, is the target of pending destruction via this war that we see in the war poetry described in such uh, powerful picture language as we have read this morning in Nahum 2. History records a coalition of the Medes and the Babylonians fulfilling these very words of Nahum's prophetic war poetry. And near as I can figure, it took about three months. Three months and this world-dominating power was overrun, all their plunder destroyed, their society uh, absolutely demolished. Uh, the, the nation was reduced to rubble in just a short amount of time. A nation that once threatened to rule the world. A sobering truth indeed. Lest we ever grow prideful, arrogant, and idolatrous in the relative security we feel in a nation that's strong enough to be a world power today. Do not place faith in chariots or horses. Do not place faith in governments of men. Do not place faith in your ability to wield the sword against your neighbors. A lesson that we learned from Nahum chapter 2. Because on the day of God's accounting, no one stands when he has decided enough is enough. Scholars have noted a threefold division in Nahum's chapters, Nahum's three chapters. And one scholar put it this way. He says, chapter 1 is judgment declared on the nation. Chapter 2 is judgment described. And we've read that this morning. Um, powerful descriptions of the judgment of God. Chapter 3 is judgment defended. A more specific statement of the reasons why this hor these horrible uh, eventualities are coming upon the city. The descriptions of Nineveh's demise and catastrophic defeat are vivid indeed in chapter 2. As we behold the glory of God manifest in the spectacular defeat of his enemies. Remember that phrase, because Nahum illustrates this. It illustrates that the glory of God is advanced, proclaimed, and manifest. The glory of, the God, of God is shown forth in the spectacular defeat of his enemies. This isn't just an Old Testament thing. We'll close this morning's message reminding ourselves of prophecies in Revelation 19, where the spectacular defeat of the greatest of enemies in history is to the praise and to the glory of Christ Jesus, our conquering Lord, the King of Kings, who has defeated the greatest of enemies even in your life. He has defeated sin and the grave on your account, triumphing over them in His death. And that defeat was spectacular. But it was a grueling battle, as it were. And we see in His work on Calvary, Christ declaring war on the enemy and triumphing over Him and delivering judgment against our sin in His death on the cross. And it was gruesome. It was graphic. Yet that shed blood is precious to us because it was our redemption. And that picture of the glorious defeat of His enemies and that act of triumphal war declared on Satan and sin 
is powerful, proclaims the glory of God in his defeat over his enemies. This theme is not exclusive to Nahum. Rather, this account is added to the notable events all through the course of world history that foretell the ultimate victory of the risen Christ over every principality and power until all nations confess and every tongue confesses, every knee bows that Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Here's an example in history of knees bowing and tongues confessing that they cannot stand when God's judgment comes against a wicked people. Nahum therefore teaches us with Psalm 20 that some trust in chariots and some in horses. That would be Assyria and Nineveh in our example today. But is it you? Is it me? Do we trust in the strong arm of man? In the horn, as it were, the implements of violence and war and power and authority that our nation boasts? We ought not. Some trust in chariots, some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the King. May He answer us when we call. Amen. Nahum foretells four soft targets of divine judgment. Four points of vulnerability, soft targets if you will, where His judgment will be directed against this wicked people. I have four words to identify them, and then we'll go through them in our text. Power, posterity, which is future generations, prosperity, or you could say the economy, and fourthly, prestige, or their influence. Power, posterity, prosperity, and prestige. These are three soft targets, three vulnerable points in the nation of Assyria. When God struck a blow and it devastated these four areas, the nation was, would never rise again. Our nation is vulnerable in the same way. You can feel it in the news, can you not? People fret because our economy might be threatened by this or that. The economy of any nation is a soft target of God's judgment. When He strikes a blow against the prosperity of a people, it indeed is devastating. It can be absolutely destructive. But He has more weapons and more targets at His disposal. He can reduce the power and influence. He can destroy the war machine of a nation. And likewise... He can do the same in generations, their future, the lineage, the leadership, the generations to come, and finally their influence and the way that they once held sway and powerful uh, control over those around them. Suddenly, they're made a laughingstock and a byword, and they're a mockery to the nations around instead of striking fear and terror in their hearts. And so we can see that these ideas are... are, uh, are appropriate for our time today and have relevance to our situation. Keep that in mind as we work through these. Let's consider the first soft target of divine judgment. First of all, I'll draw your attention to Hebrew, or I'm sorry, Nahum 2.13. Notice there are four categories here in descriptive language of how God will wage war against His people. He says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And here's the first target. I will burn your chariots in smoke. And the second one, and the sword shall devour your young lions. Then the third, I will cut off your prey from the earth. And fourth, the voice of your messenger shall no longer be heard. So there we have it. A death blow struck to the power, to the posterity, the prosperity, and the prestige of a nation. The Lord says to Nineveh, I will burn your chariots and smoke. 
I will destroy your powerful implements of war, that is to say. Secondly, I will bring the sword to devour your young lions, which is a picture of the capable and strong, the future, the generation, the men who are the braves, if you will, the warriors who would go out and fight. I will devour your young lions, he says. Thirdly, I will cut off your prey from the earth, so no more resources to exploit. A hunter goes and he brings in supply. I will cut off your supply. And fourthly, your messenger shall no longer be heard. So those who are emissaries carrying the will and the authority of the nation forward are silenced. They will not be heard or seen of ever again after the Lord's for uh, target judgment is complete. So let us look back at this passage, chapter 2, and see how these uh, soft targets are destroyed and the specifics surrounding the uh, word here from Nahum. First of all, power. Again, when the Lord declares that I will burn your chariots, we can associate many ideas with this figurative language. Here are a few. The Lord will destroy, that is to say, Nineveh's war-making capability, Nineveh's military strength. Notice in verse uh, 2, or verse 3, some examples of this. First of all, verse 1, the scatterer has come against you, and here's a call, a challenge to retreat to their arms or to gather their ability to defend themselves. Uh, Nahum says, man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect your strength. Why? Well, we find the reason why Nineveh better prepare for war in verse 3. The shield of his mighty men is red, it says. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal. On the day he musters them, the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets, fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. So this is a picture of great military conflict. There is an army that is raised up sovereignly by the Lord to come in and to clash with the ramparts roads and the dress for battle, the uh, weapons and the men of Assyria and Nineveh. So here we have the power uh, being targeted of this nation. Um, When a nation takes pride in its war-making capability, they put themselves in a vulnerable position. Here's an application for us today. Even this day, uh, nations now, as they did then, take pride in their war-making ability. They take great security and great confidence in their implements of war. Today, they are superior in many ways, unprecedented than any other point in history. We have aircraft carriers that are like floating cities. You've seen them. There's airstrips on them and planes fly to and fro from this floating man-made island that can sail around the world powered by nuclear energy. There are submarines underneath our seas that are equipped with nuclear warheads that at the push of a button can destroy, flatten a whole population center. Devastating tools of war-making capability. Recently in the news, as, soon as, as recent as last year, we saw North Korea military parades where trucks and semis bearing missiles were paraded through the streets and the people cheer and cry and uh, 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 celebrate and, and offer their praises on account of this proof before their eyes of their influence, their power and security as a state. And what do Americans do? They laugh at such a picture. Why? 
because they say, look at our implements of war. Can this paper mache rocket compare to our aircraft carrier, our nuclear sub? I think not. You better look out, little fat Kim Jong-un, or America's going to get you. But notice the attitude reflected in that response to that war parade. It's just fighting fire with fire. It's just matching armament for armament. We could be just as guilty as any other pagan tyrannical nation of placing faith in our power to make war. That is a vulnerable target of God's judgment. May we repent as a people for placing security and assurance for the longevity and health of our nation and our ability to to destroy our neighbors. Did it help Assyria? Did it help Babylon? Did it help any of the great empires? They rose for a time as tools in God's sovereign hand to bring judgment on another nation. But if they didn't learn their lesson, they all shared the same fate. They were destroyed because their power became a soft target for the divine judgments of God when they took pride in something that they could accomplish and did not humble themselves before the law of God. Now this four-part structure is matched with this four-part call to man the ramparts, watch the road, in verse 1, dress for battle and collect your strength. So in the language of this poetry, that's a challenge and a taunt. You better watch out. If somebody says that kind of language, is like, you better run for your life. That's the spirit in which these words are given. You better go grab your sword because there is such a devastating onslaught of of enemies that are knocking at the very gates of your city that you are about to be overrun. So these four calls, these taunting calls to man the battle stations are answered in our closing four phrases in verse 13, his burning of the chariots and his devouring of the young lions and so on. In other words, uh, you better man the ramparts because I will burn your chariots in smoke. You better watch the road because I'm about to devour your young lions. You better dress for battle because I will cut off your prey from the earth. Better collect your strength, because your messenger shall no longer be heard. So this is the language of war. And how successful is this battle campaign? Well, we see this detailed in verses 3 and 4. And let us notice some specifics. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. First of all, note the possessive pronoun, his. Whose armies are these? Well, in the uh, scope and the context, historically and biblically, these armies are those who have arisen from Babylon as God, and uh, in um, alliance with the Medes to bring judgment upon Nineveh, the capital of Syria. So the Lord describes these uh, Median Babylonian armies as His mighty men. Why does He do so? Because our God is sovereign. There is no battle. There is no skirmish. There is no campaign. No, uh, 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 no devastating event in history in which God's hands were tied or he did not use to his advantage. Even the sinful clash of sinful men is a hammer, as God describes it, in his hand or an axe to wield his judgments or a, or a, a chastising rod to correct his people. And this is no exception. God is raising up his mighty men from Babylon to bring a day of reckoning on his offenders in Nineveh. His soldiers are clothed in red. And the, the idea here, this uh, red, this language of the signific- that indicates some significance of the color, scarlet, and so on, 
It, it uh, communicates both fear, uh, that you think of the shed blood as the color of red, and also superiority. A army that can afford to be dressed in red in these times is a superior force indeed. It, the, the language is, as uh, is, is elite as you think your forces are, you're about to be overrun by a more fearful and devastating force yet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them, and the spears are brandished. And here we have a sort of back and forth, the frenetic or the chaotic events of war are pictured in the poetry. Verse 4, the chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. You've probably seen uh, reenactments of war in movies and the like. And sometimes, especially when the camera is close to the action, it's just nothing but chaos. I often find myself wondering, how would I even be able to distinguish between friend and foe? You're almost closing your eyes and swinging your sword wildly just to maintain your own survival in this chaotic, dangerous, absolute explosive you know, clash of arms and men and horses and artillery. It's, it's a frightful position to be in. And this is the picture that is brought to mind in this illustrative language, in this poetic language. The chariots are racing madly through the streets. Chaos has descended upon Nineveh. There's flashing metal. Armaments, weapons are flying through the air. Spears are striking like lightning. People are dying left and right. A great cry of lament will soon arise from the city as the streets run with the blood of those who just moments ago felt safe and secure behind their walls in the reputation of their great military successes. No longer do they have any acclaim to peace and security or even a nation or a people. They will soon be overrun, captive, their nation destroyed, and their city reduced to ruins. And all these events, it's like gleaming torches, lightning, these snapshots and pictures and Chaotic moments, the back and forth of war, the clash of the battlefronts as weapon is matched against weapon and one by one the trained and hardened and outfitted warriors of Nineveh fall by the swords of the, of the Babylonians and the Medes. These were a people who had lived by the sword and as the scripture says, they will therefore die by the sword. They have become prey to their neighbors. They made their neighbors prey of old in their terroristic activities, in their land acquisition, and in their war. But now they have become the prey to a new lion uh, on the block, as it were, a, a neighboring nation who is taking them over because God has raised up his army to judge this people. So that's the first target of divine judgment, the power of the nation to make war. They're destroyed in a three-month siege in moments, they are reduced to nothing by a superior force. That is, the Lord, that is the Lord's army indeed, His mighty men. Secondly, let us consider posterity. Again in 2.13, the Lord says, I will burn your chariots when smoke. But He also says, I will devour your young lions. A soft target, a vulnerable aspect of any nation's future is their children. How will the nation continue if they do not have young and capable 
ambitious and brilliant, uh, brave and, and uh, uh, multiplying families among them and y- young people. Uh, when we see this language of devouring your young lions, we are reminded of the general, generational hope of any given nation is its investment in the future in human personnel. It is they're young and they're capable. They're strong and they're ambitious. They're warriors, they're hunters, they're explorers, they're college graduates, they're entrepreneurs, they're uh, young families, and uh, they're uh, bold warriors who sign up for, the, for a fighting overseas. The, these are the horns of a society. The sharp implements, as, as uh, the scriptures say, of the beast. When the, when the beast is advancing his territory or defending his own, he uses the implement of strength and authority and force. That would be his horns. And in the same way, the lions of any society are the young and the capable, the future, the next generation. But this is a place of vulnerability. If, you, uh, if the population is aging, if there is a great plague that devastates the future generation, or if the people lose hope and simply do not raise families anymore, then the future will be obliterated. In Jeremiah 29, it's interesting to note the contrast and judgment throughout the scriptures. In Jeremiah 29, you know, there's that famous verse that's often quoted, I will give you a future and a hope, and, uh, and I know my plans I have for you, I'll give you a future and a hope, and we, that's, that's one we often memorize and put on refrigerators and put on our calendars with you know, beautiful uh, scenes of mountains in the background and whatnot. But if you read the context of Jeremiah 29, God's people are heading into exile. And the Lord is telling them that even in uh, these circumstances where he has raised up an army to bring chastisement upon them, they will nevertheless have a future and a hope. So what is the difference between God's people and his promises in Jeremiah 29 And Nineveh right now, well, God did not destroy, as it were, all of the young lions. God tells the people through the prophet Jeremiah, when you enter into Babylon as exiles, seek the good of the city. He tells them to plant gardens and to exchange in commerce. And he tells the young people to do not be afraid to take a wife. Uh, Seek the good of the city, raise families, even in exile. And when you do so, You'll be participating in faith with God's plans to give you a future and a hope so that after 70 years, when his judgment for their sin is complete, when his chastisement is in full, they can return with healthy families, even in exile, having been taught the law of God to repopulate his realm and Judah can be revived and Jerusalem reconstituted. So there is a a, a sharp contrast. The Lord preserved in his people, the young lions as it were. He was committed to his covenant that a posterity, the seed of David, would continue. And so we have plenty of application in our life today, in our, in our uh, circumstances today, do we not? We hear demographers, people who study future generations, lament about the West. They talk about a demographic winter, meaning the population of our future is threatened. Why? Because the Lord in His judgments, may I suggest, has struck at a vulnerable place in our nation and among Western cultures. And people just stop having children, often of their own accord. Why? Because they have lost hope for the future. They are cowering in fear. And these are symptoms of something wrong 
in the land. And when a nation finds itself in this situation, it is reason to take stock, to look to the Lord and to His Word, and to realize the situation that we are in, that it is devastating when a nation's future is threatened, and when no one thinks farther than the next generation, or no one has the ability to, because they have been utterly destroyed, and the generations have been stripped of their power to reproduce. In verse 7, the language is specific and graphic. It says, its mistress is stripped. She is carried off, her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves, and beating their breasts. And the picture here is the society, the loving and nurturing conditions that are represented by a mother's care that are necessary for the future survival and the health of any society. They're stripped and destroyed. They're dismembered and they are hauled off. And now the more vulnerable elements of the society pictured in the young women, and, and they are uh, distraught and they have no hope for the future because the nation and the families are being pulled apart at the seams. This uh, moaning of doves, um, speaking of something like the maidens to the mistress, may also refer to the surrounding cities around Nineveh, that they too realized that the end was nigh when this great battle campaign was waged upon their nation. We go on to see more of this uh, language in verse 8. It says, Nineveh is like a pool whose waters have run away. And here, it's interesting language that, is, that uh, illustrates how that which was a reservoir and held the fortunes of the people has been punctured and has been drained out. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters have drained away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. And the picture is something, if you uh, imagine in your mind in New Orleans, you remember in Hurricane Katrina, uh, the, na- the, the city of New, or- New Orleans, uh, uh, it rests upon or it survives, it is, it is dependent upon the strength of the levees holding back the water. And as this gigantic storm was uh, threatening the seashores down in Louisiana, levees, dikes, dams began to break. And the water rushed out of its holding place and began to flood the city. This is a picture that helps us realize the devastating effects of God's judgments when they come. Imagine standing on one of those dikes on this big hill meant to hold back water. And there's this cascading waterfall as the levee has been broken and waters are rushing into the city. And you yell at the water, shaking your fist, stop right now. You stop, water. Stop right now. You would be a madman. Only a fool would curse at the water and command it to stop and expect to be able to save the city of New Orleans just by his anger and shaking his fist. And this is the picture. Nineveh is like a pool, and her reservoir has been punctured by the sovereign hand of God. And there are those who stand at this moment of reckoning in the city, and they say, halt, halt, stop you waters, gather back in. But their cries are futile and foolish. They are like madmen. The devastation is done. God's work has been predestined. It's taking place in time. It's irreversible in this moment. And in spite of their protests, they cannot stop the power of God, 
when he sets his mind to bring his righteousness, a mandatory acknowledgement of his righteousness back into a city who has willfully rebelled and denied against him and denied his holy name. That's the picture. The posterity, the future, the fortunes, the security of Nineveh is being stripped, it's being drained, it's been abandoned, and it will leave them in ruins. That's all there remains of Nineveh today. Thirdly, a soft target of divine judgment, prosperity. I will cut off your prey from the earth, the Lord says to this nation. A vulnerable place for any nation is their economy, their resources, their plunder, the ability to levy tariffs, the taxable income of their population, the exploitation of their neighbors, spoils of war, supply, imports, economic vitality. This is a vulnerable, soft target for any nation. When God brings judgment against the people, He often targets these elements of their society. In our nation today, we have plenty of economic problems, and those woes are echoed across the newswires. And how should we take this situation? Those scriptures say that blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. But if they abandon even His truth about stewardship, they break the Ten Commandments. They break the law that says, Thou shalt not steal. Our nation needs to learn the truth that thou shalt not steal against the future productivity of generations against their will by levying taxes that will be owed in the future by a posterity who will be destroyed because they're levied with county unfunded liabilities, one point something million dollars of debt by, from the very moment they are born. This is a problem, and this is evidence not of prosperity, but of judgment. If we look at the economic conditions of our nation, how ought we interpret and understand and discern our situation? Perhaps our wealth has been plundered. Perhaps it has been squandered because we have abandoned the truth of God's holy word. And insofar as that's true, may we repent because we are vulnerable to enemies overrunning our nation by this measure alone. We see the plundering taking place in Nahum's day. Plunder the silver, verse 9, plunder the gold. There's no end of the treasure, nor of the wealth of all precious things. You see, for years, even centuries, Nineveh, the, their kings, Assyria, had gone and they had confiscated, they had stolen the wealth, they had overrun nations, taken their gold and put more and more and more and more into their treasury. In the sovereignty of God, this scenario made them vulnerable for plunder. When God overran their city, it just took weeks for what took you know, centuries for them to accumulate, to be apprehended, and to be dispersed by their enemies. And so in a moment, God showed them that you can't place trust in riches and have any confidence that your future is secure. There is no hope to be found in the stock market, a modern application. There is no ultimate peace or assurance to be found in insurance or in uh, investments or successful business endeavors, there is only ultimately hope to be found in the Lord and in His Word. Amen. Now, He lays out principles whereby if we are obedient, we will prosper to some degree. I mean, the Lord is faithful, and He blesses those who abide by His rules rightly. 
There are those principles in Scripture. But when we cheat and circumvent and abandon and break His law, we store up for ourselves deserving judgment. And with each investment of our money into things that God hates, and with each use of the means that He supplies, it's His world and all that dwell therein it, if we misuse and missteward what He has given, we stack up for ourselves more reasons for Him to judge our nation. And this is why, again, we need repentance. May we heed the words of Jonah and of Nahum and repent of our squandering and mishandling the Lord's means that He's given us. The Lord uses a great terrible event to shake the people to their very core in this war. Verse 10, desolate, desolation and ruin, hearts melts, knees tremble, anguishes in all loins, all faces grow pale. And in the original language, there's an escalating sense of overcoming maddening fear, a paralyzing, uh, absolute uh, subjugation to these circumstances that renders one uh, just absolutely terrified. And this was, again, a reap and sow situation. The nation of Assyria had been the perpetrators of great terror on their neighbors, but now as they answer to the Lord, they are themselves terrified seven times over. Their spoil or their a great wealth becomes spoils for another. Verse 12, the lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. So that's a picture of Assyria. They used to have their way among the nations and gather for themselves as much food and plunder, plunder as they wished by the force of their military. He fills his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. But this circumstance now has changed. Because God has cut his prey off, of the, off from the earth and they themselves now are being devoured by the lions their neighboring, uh, of their neighboring countries. Finally this morning, the final soft target of God's divine uh, judgment, prestige or influence. The Lord says, the voice of your messenger shall no longer be heard. <clears throat> We've heard of Assyria but we don't model our, parla or our parliaments or our, um, our governments or anything like that off of Assyria. Uh, Assyria doesn't carry much influence these days. Um, they're, in, instead, they uh, were relegated to the dustbin of history as an example of a failed nation state. But at one time, if you wanted to be successful, you better uh, pay tribute to Assyria. And Assyria was the best example, humanly speaking, anyone knew to be successful as a nation. We better beef up our war machine as they have. If we want to have any peace and security assurance in this world, they're extremely influential at the time of Jonah and Nahum's ministry. They had influence. Their worldview was uh, being spread. They instituted uh, cultural relocation campaigns. They would uh, they would uproot people from the place of their dwelling and move them to an entirely different uh, place so that they could control them uh, more easily and inculcate them with their own culture and with their own values. And soon they would be worshiping Assyrian gods. They had their own education programs. They had their own design for society, their own religious ideals, their own authority and international clout, their own foreign policy, their own publications, their renown, respect, and their reputation. It was intense, formidable indeed at this time. But how fast is it destroyed when the Lord brings judgment against this people? The seat of power is absolutely destroyed. Notice verse 6, 
the river gates are open, the palace melts away. The picture here is that the seat of authority, the central location of the rulership and the governance of the nation melts like wax before the heat of the Lord's judgment or is washed away in the flood of His reckoning. The river gates are open and the palace melts away. Now, uh, Nineveh was situated on rivers, and these rivers were a great source of, no doubt, supply, fertility, uh, transportation, and that is why the strategic location of the city. They had built dikes and diversions and dams, and they had used the water to their advantage and so on. But it also made them vulnerable to their enemies. Certain gates were opened, certain levees were busted, and when the water began to flow into the city, all of what they once boasted as a result of their situation, even geographically, melted away, was washed away in this flood of judgment. So the very things that were their strength, God used as a tool for their own destruction. And the Lord is fond of doing this against His enemies. He will let them rise for a time. Uh, One of my favorite examples of this in history is the city of Tyre, I believe. And the city of Tyre was a proud, idolatrous, uh, uh, self-exalted place of commerce and great wealth. Well, the Lord prophesied destruction, even in the scriptures, the city of Tyre. The last time it was destroyed, that I recall, well, it was destroyed many times. But the, the Romans attacked the city and they built a siege wall or they built a siege ramp all the way across the bay in order to get out there. And by the time that uh, ramp was complete, the, they, they began to tear down pieces of the wall and they strengthened the road. And uh, even today, if you look on the coast of Tyre, you can see uh, pieces of block and so on and so forth. Those came from the ancient city walls and the ancient buildings. So the very things that they boasted in became tools of their own destruction. Their buildings became a causeway for their defeat. This is how the Lord uh, answers the rebellion of nations against Him. Notice in these moments where judgment comes in a flood and the seat of power is destroyed, how much it is a contrast to how God, used, or how God intervened for His people in the past. When God's people, following Him, came to a river, it was parted. And across the Jordan on dry land, the people entered into the promised land. When God's people were faced with the potential of being destroyed by Pharaoh's armies because the Red Sea was in the way, the winds of God's power blew all night long and under the extended staff of Moses and soon there was dry land for his people to cross. The Lord uses water, ways as an instrument of salvation and at other times he uses them as an instrument of judgment. The river of Jordan and, uh, and the sea And the Red Sea were instruments of salvation for God's people. They had a pathway to the promised land, and then they collapsed upon their enemies. The river that that Nineveh boasted in became an instrument of judgment against God's enemies. The flood in Noah's day, was uh, there was salvation in the ark, but it was judgment for the rebellious world who did not heed His one way of salvation. And so we see patterns of God's judgment and His salvation in our text even today. There's a great exchange of fortunes that is taking place. You might ask the question, why is God doing this? And we've answered that question a lot in this message by saying because the people were wicked. But there is a second reason as well. Verse 2, 
For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. One of God's purposes in destroying his enemies is to magnify and to glorify himself through a redeemed people. Nineveh was threatening God's means of preserving the lineage of the Messiah. So therefore, their lineage was destroyed. Nineveh was making war against the people of God, and if they had their way, preventing his future plans of providing the only way of salvation for anyone of all nations who would place their trust in him. Nineveh was seeking to stand in the way of the promise to Abraham that he and his seed after him would be a light to all the nations. So in preservation of his glory and his promised Messiah and in uh, his promises and covenant to his people, he preserved all of this by destroying his enemies. As we remarked in the prayer to introduce this message, we have evidence in our text today how 2,600 years ago, the Lord was removing obstacles for your salvation. The destruction of Nineveh was an obstacle removed so that you might come into the kingdom. Think of it. This is God's sovereign hand in history. He was fighting for you, his elect, his own, his people, who in Christ and in his perfect will, he knew would come in to his sheepfold. He was fighting for you in destroying Nineveh those many years ago. Will he not fight for you now, saint? He has fought for you in sending his son, defeating sin, defeating the grave, and he will fight for you in the future. For his own glory and namesake. Turn to Revelation 19 in closing this morning and let us see the battle campaign of our Lord advancing his glory in these words, echoing the historical example in Nahum's day and signaling the utter victorious campaign of Christ our Lord. In Revelations 19.11, John is writing, Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. That is, of course, crowns, the symbol of authority. Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. We continue. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Uh, Notice in verse 13 that this warrior is clothed in red as well. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Verse 15, And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on, and on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Goes on to describe the utter demise, the complete carnage and wreckage, the utter ruins of any beast, any authority, any nation, any king, any Lord who would exalt himself against the triumphant Christ. Christ goes forward in history. Our Lord Jesus is marched forward in history, showing us by exploit after exploit, that he is the triumphal warrior. He is preserving his people and defeating their enemies all through history. We need not fear our future 
if we are in his victory parade. We need not fear uh, under the tyrannical hand of governments, perhaps even our own, these days if we recognize that Christ our Lord will defeat every one of his wicked foes. Thus we see in Nahum's account a foreshadowing of these consummate realities in Revelation. When the technologically marvelous modern powers fail in their best attempts to defy the ultimate lordship of Jesus Christ, the international stage becomes ground zero for the judgments of God. And you and me, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, the faithful can set their clocks by the historical countdown to the shaming and the humiliation of the great beasts and powers of the earth. Because no one will ultimately stand against Christ and win. In his work on Calvary, not the devil, not sin, nor any other power, principality, or authority. Praise his holy name. Let us close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the declaration of your victory that has echoed all through history. As we have touched upon one of those moments in your scriptures today, use it to equip us for two things. As we have asked, Lord Jesus, that you would accomplish through this sermon, that it would sour our appetite for idolatry, that we would recognize and reject any dependence and faith in things of this world or schemes of man. And secondly, that it would strengthen our faith in Christ so that we might stare into the eyes of even your enemies this day and say, your days are numbered. Repent and believe. Let us go forward, Lord Jesus, equipped and with the boldness of your prophets of old to announce to a dying nation, generation, that our only hope is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. In him is salvation secure, and there are no substitutes. Equip us for this call, we pray. Thank you for the equipping means that your spirit supplies. And may you receive fruit, Lord Jesus, from our obedience to the text today. Lord, may we glorify you more as a result of hearing your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.